0: For more information, visit outdooredge.com.
1: Hey, everybody, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman. I am your host, Mitchell Shirk, and at the moment it is 4:30 4:30 in the morning on Wednesday and I am sitting in the passenger seat of my truck and my cousin is driving. We are headed down to New Jersey so I don't know if anybody would have followed us on Instagram or Pennsylvania uh, Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast on Instagram or Facebook but I posted uh, some information you know we had our episode uh, a week or two ago that had Jay Lyon on talking about bear hunting in New Jersey and we also you know I posted some stuff about the hunt being temporarily postponed you know we were concerned that it wasn't going to come back on and and I might have my information wrong but the way I understand it is the use of the emergency action uh, that initiated this hunt in the first place was challenged in the court and was upheld so the opening day of bear season was supposed to be Monday this week December 5th and it was closed and I got a text message yesterday from the state saying that the bear hunt was back on that it it passed in court so we are pedal down I got all my stuff rock you know rock and rolled ready to roll uh, got the slug guns sighted in tree stands ready all that good stuff so we are down and excited to go bear hunting we can also shoot a buck so it's kind of a cool ops it's like a it's like an extra christmas activity because we just came off of deer season uh my my big group hunt that i do at my camp I had a fantastic time. My dad shot his best buck ever. His buddy shot a really, really good buck. We saw other deer. We had misses. We had a great time. It's, you know, it's the hunt I talk about so much. But we didn't have any bear sign. We had absolutely zero bear sign. No bear action in that hunt. Uh, bear season in Pennsylvania during the rifle bear season. We did have a little bit of action, but it was still on the slow side. So this is just an extra opportunity and i'm i'm pretty jacked so we're uh we're gonna get out of here pretty quickly because it's time to hunt but before we uh we do let's let's talk about this week's episode so i had an individual reach out to me and ask if i would be interested in doing a podcast with him and that person's name is Thomas Keller, and he is the fur bearer biologist for the state of Pennsylvania, and he was talking about this really interesting opportunity in which they the state is interested in reintroducing the American Martin, and me being a hunter and a little bit of a blockhead, the first thought I had was, Really? we're, we're going to introduce another predator to the state of pennsylvania you know, what about the turkeys what about the grouse you know all those all you know our small game species that that are in jeopardy from higher pred- you know, predators um but you know i i'm not a complete blockhead i don't think I, I have a degree in biology. I, I have some common sense when it comes to those topics. And I absolutely wanted to hear out and hear hear this. So we, we have a, a great conversation. Tom is an awesome guy. He is, you know, a family man. He is an outdoorsman. Really down to earth guy. I loved this conversation with him. He, uh, and we, we, Catch up a little bit and, and talk about you know hunting, fishing, trapping, family, work, life, and we start diving into the American Martin. We we kind of go through the biology, what what the animal is. We go through why the state would consider it, and then. I got to do something I thought was pretty fun, I got to play devil's advocate and think of every possible question or every possible concern that somebody would have as to why we should not allow this species to be reintroduced into the state of Pennsylvania. And at the close of this conversation, I, I was very, I, I was—I had nothing to say against it. I, I couldn't be Anti-American, Martin. It was there, there was a lot of solid facts that he presented to me. I learned a lot about the species. It, as far as it, it doesn't seem like it's a major threat through, for any of our game species. It's 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 kind of a, a pretty cool opportunity, and and the way that this species would kind of commingle in our ecosystem. it it does it seems too good to be true but you know instead of me talking about it how about you guys tune into this episode listen go into it with an open mind and let me know what you think send us a comment send us an email something like that let us know at the end of this episode what you think but hey we're we still got a week left of rifle season hope everything is going well guys keep safe and best of luck to you. I am going to go and get ready to go bear hunting. So we'll catch you later. All right, we're rolling. Uh, Thomas Keller, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Mitchell. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Yeah, so you had reached out um, a couple weeks ago, I believe, and emailed me about a really, really interesting topic, slightly um, controversial, but um, definitely, I think, good good overall from the standpoint of, of wildlife and habitat management in Pennsylvania. But, uh, you know, as we, as we dive into that, you know, kind of introduce yourself and, uh, and, and tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, so as far as education goes, I decided, uh, you know, as a young hunter and fisherman and trapper, my goal was to spend as much time in the outdoors as I could. So I wanted to make, make a living out of it. So I ended up, um, going to, to Penn State for my undergraduate degree and that was in wildlife and fisheries management and then um, got into the workforce, went to work for uh, U.S. department of ag and wildlife services. And so that was working uh, with kind of wildlife, human conflict, disease management, things like that. And then um, wanted to get back with the, the Pennsylvania game commission, knowing that was my home and uh, ended up coming back and um, working as a regional biologist in our southwest region. At the same time, I just decided to go back to grad school and and uh, had a family at the time, so did that in the evening. Um was able to get my master's in uh, conservation biology and then uh, ended up moving on to the game bird uh, section as the pheasant quail coordinator. Did that a few years, then worked as a pheasant quail biologist Uh, and dove biologist for a number of years. Took a promotion to the game mammal section supervisor position, supervised our our bear uh, program, our small mammal program, and our fur bear program. And then actually when our fur bear biologist um, decided to move back to New Mexico and took another position, I actually took a demotion to step into the fur bear biologist position. So kind of been all over the map, but it's been a good experience and kind of has helped me become a little bit more well-rounded
1: yeah I'll say that that's a lot to digest there with that with that track record which is pretty impressive so I have to ask you because when you're talking about going through your experiences and and knowing that you were interested in wildlife I was in that position at one time too I I thought Mm. I uh, wanted to go for wildlife and fisheries and you know, set and determined that I was going to do everything as far that a deer biologist would do, and I just thought that was the perfect thing. And I had some people in my life at that time when you're 17, 18 years old, which I, I was the biggest blockhead I think you could find at 17, 18 years old. But um, I had a lot of people that guided me and said, you know, you might be better off going a little bit more generic and just mm-hmm. getting a biology degree, and that, that's mm-hmm. that's going to be good in some ways, and it'll be bad in some ways when you're trying to get specific with wildlife, but if you're kind of more open, and that was one of those silver linings behind the cloud, because when I was in the midst of it, I was thinking, I made the wrong choice, but it turns out mm-hmm. uh, there was a uh, kind of a, a different plan for me as far as my interest in the science, but I'm curious, like, for, for you, like, what made you know you wanted to, to do this, and did you have any uh role models or hmm. anybody that really um inspired you in into this direction of field of focus
2: yeah definitely did you know when i got out of high school um i really did not want to go to college and actually wanted to be to get into farming i had grew up kind of farming and and that was kind of my goal but i actually had a high school teacher right before i graduated that um said you know you've really got a passion for this you've got an interest and uh, he said, I really feel like you need to pursue, you know, wildlife management, the field of wildlife management. And and Penn State has a good program. They have a good uh, starter program at their branch campus at Dubois, a two-year wildlife tech degree. And he said, you know, I'd really encourage you if, if you get out and you decide that you want to do something else. And so it took me two years kind of in the workforce doing some different things, which I think helped me grow up a little bit um, and kind of make that decision as to where I wanted to go with the career. And so I'm always thankful to him. And, and of course my family and other folks that have kind of you know, like you spoken some truth into my life and, and helped kind of give me some guidance because, I think like you said we're all blockheads when we're 16, 17, 18 years old. <laughs> you the, know, the cycle just...
1: is like terrible. Like who came up with the system that said at at 17 years old you were going to make one of the biggest decisions of your yeah. life if you to... like, who, <laughs> who wrote that? Like I,
2: God, yeah. I just hated. It. It's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, and and I feel like, you know, I'm sure kids feel that pressure as they come out of high school to make that decision and that's why I've always encouraged people if you're not ready for college, you know, go out and get into the workforce, work a few years, you might work some jobs that you love, but you might find some things that you really don't love. And that might be enough encouragement to get you, um, uh, give you more of a path as to where you really want to go. And that's just experiencing different career fields instead of just picking one, actually get out there, shadow somebody and, and we always encourage that at, at the agency is like, if you think you're interested, come out with us for a day, you know, give me a call. I can get you hooked into the right position, the right person and, um, and see if it's something you really want to do. Cause it might not be, and you don't want to get stuck somewhere after four years of, of college and um, loans and things like that. And, and then not really want to do what you set out to do.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that, job shadowing thing is a big thing because a lot of time people have an expectation in their mind and it's not even close to that what it actually is when when they do it. Yes. So, um, so took a, you said a a slight demotion to being the fur bearer biologist. So Mm -hmm. can you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And it was a good life lesson for me. I think, you know, as a lot of us get into a career path and, and, uh, particularly in this career path, you know, I, I got into it to be outside to work with wildlife. Um, and, and we know as wildlife managers, like a lot of our management is actually people management, you know, working with, uh, landowners, working with the public, um, working with colleagues and that kind of thing. But, but as we move up, uh, we begin to work almost solely with people. We come out of the field and then we get more into the politics. We get more into, um, kind of that management. And when I took that section supervisor position, it was really just obviously managing people, managing um, our different programs within the game mammal section. And it, it was a good job. I had absolutely wonderful people working underneath me. And now of course they're my colleagues. Um, so that, it certainly was a, it was, it was a good experience for me. And it's one of those deals where I'm really thankful I did it. Um, but I'm also thankful to know that that's not really where I belong. I don't really belong in management. Um, and, and, I knew that, you know, I was a much better biologist than I was a manager. And so good experience. And, and again, when, when the forbear position came open, I had already served as the, uh, the pheasant quail dub biologist. I knew what having a program like that was like, I enjoyed it a lot. You know, you still had some field work, but you're also managing a, a statewide program. And, um, and that was really fulfilling to me. So, um, I always, you know, was interested in game birds, always interested in fur bears and, uh, and a lot of times, to be honest with you, when these program positions open up, it's not very often, you know, because they're a good, it's a good job and people want to stay in it. So when that fur bear position opened up, I, I kind of made that leap and took that demotion and, you know, you lose some money, but in all honesty, you know, I never really got into this career field for money which is good but um, but you know it's it's really more because I'm passionate about it and I believe in what we're doing and um, in, in managing wildlife for Pennsylvanians so so that's kind of what was going on behind it and again I'm I'm happy and thankful for the experience but I, I learned more about almost learn more about myself and, and right. where I really kind of fit in
1: I, I have to ask a stupid question. What sure. what is easier to manage, wildlife or people?
2: <laughs> it's very difficult. And you know that's a good question because um, you think it's about something like CWD. You know, here's here's something where trying to manage it in a wildlife population is is extremely difficult. But we're also trying to manage people, working with the public, working with other agencies, and that's extremely difficult. You know, in some ways. Managing wildlife can be extremely easy. You know, when, when we look at harvest and and we want to increase harvest or decrease harvest, it's easy as setting seasons of bag limits. It might be adding a week, you know, adding increasing bag limit, decreasing, and that can be relatively easy. Um, But I would say working with people is challenging and it's and and that's where as a a wildlife biologist or wildlife professional um, those people skills, which, you know, I had very little people skills getting into this because I'm an introvert, um, and that's the way most of us are. You know, most of us just want to be in the woods, just want to, just want to be hands on with wildlife. And so, I think for us to excel, we really need to to dig deep, work on our people skills and our presentation skills. And
1: that was um, a very and, professional and way of saying people are a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no it it, sometimes it feels like that but in all honesty when you really talk to somebody even if they have major concerns or oppose what you're doing they generally have good reason behind that and so any anytime i have the opportunity to actually speak with somebody it's because they they love that wildlife just as much as i do and 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 we might see things a little differently Mm -hmm. you know you know from either an ecological perspective or from a hunter's perspective or whatever but and I think that gets to, you know, particularly our constituency and how important hunters have been as really the leading conservationists and what really supports most wildlife management, including non-game. Mm. Um, it's because they love, they love these species and they're passionate about these species. And, and so that's, that's always in the back of my mind is even if somebody isn't happy with a decision that I'm trying to make, um, if I can speak to them usually we can get on that same page of like, we both love this particular species and we're both want the best for it. You know, is there a way that we can kind of compromise to get, get there? So yeah, it's, you, it's interesting.
1: You, you hit that spot on. You really did. And I was, I was making my jokes there, but that's, that's so accurate. Um, sure. one of the things with, with hunting, with trapping, with fishing, anything in the outdoors, you said there's, there's a lot of passion and mm-hmm. a lot of emotion, And let's face it, you can probably come up with any topic in life, and if you allow emotion to be a part of your reasoning and your response to something, you're probably not going to end very, very well on that note. Mm. Um, You know, having having reason, uh, following science... Um, you know, science isn't always correct, but it's it's a constant um, it's a constant research, it's a constant learning experience, and we've gotten to the point where we're at um, with with research. and And have there been mistakes made over the the course of uh, centuries by humans? Absolutely, but um, you know, there's I like to think we've come a long way in a lot of sense. You know, you're talking yeah. about people management. I was thinking about like just bringing something simple as down as deer hunting. So mm-hmm. when you, when you talk to like, it's everybody is like an expert now, I think on property management and doing this to shoot your big buck and this and that. And really what it comes down to, the, the concept of providing quality habitat is not that complex. Um, food cover security cover browse water all that stuff and you're going to have you know hopefully a highly attractive property and go deer hunting um Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you're going to execute your your goals whether that's you know harvesting a really big mature buck or whatever Uh, that's a people management aspect of it and that's where things can get a little bit complicated and i think that's why there's this whole outdoor podcasting world um but, yeah. no, educating is, is a big thing in and, and different perspectives, and uh, that's kind of what we're here today. So uh, I, I'm done with my little tangent here. We're, uh, we're here to talk about a really cool, exciting, potential new project um, by, by the Game Commission. So I'll let you take the floor and just kind of give us the overview of what's going on.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so so what we're looking at um, or proposing is actually the reintroduction of the American Martin back to Pennsylvania. And so as far as what that means, and, and we'll kind of talk more about like what a plan would look like or, um, and we'll get into the assessment, but, but what we worked on really for the past year was uh, developing an assessment um, to to kind of look at the potential for reintroduction. And, and when we say assessment, you know, what we really mean is looking at all the risks, um, looking at whether uh, Pennsylvania would be ready um, for such a reintroduction. And so we we have a long history of reintroductions in Pennsylvania. We're honestly one of the leading states to uh, bring back many of the species that have been lost. And so we kind of have a better track record than just about anybody out there. Um, And and so what that has looked like, you know, even before i came along into this position this was something that the game commission had been considering for quite some time um, even about 20 years ago we had an outside entity uh, do a similar assessment uh, to look at whether this was a possibility or not at the time as an agency we didn't feel like we had enough information on habitat that was really critical um, and it of course is critical for a species like the american martin Uh, that relies on a specific habitat type. Um, But what we what we have gotten since then is actually a lot of technology that's helped us determine whether we have habitat here in Pennsylvania or not. And so uh, we actually put this into our strategic plan uh, for 2020 to 2023. So it's our agency strategic plan. And one of the goals was to develop this uh, feasibility assessment uh, by July of this past year, so July of 2022. And then the next part of that goal was actually to develop a reintroduction and management plan. And that's, of course, what we're working on now. And so just to give you an overview of kind of the timeline, so we developed the assessment, we brought that to the Board of Commissioners, and we made the recommendation that uh, we should move forward with developing the plan. And so they gave us the green light to move forward with the plan development. And then what we'll be doing is working on this plan uh, for reintroduction and for long-term management. And that plan uh, will be coming back to the board for their review in July of 2023. And then at that time, we'll be asking the board to move it into a public review and comment period. And this is just like every other management plan that we would do for any species. Uh, This is exactly how we the process that we move through and then following public review and comment, we take those comments into consideration. We try to tie in as many as we can into that plan and then we bring that plan back as a final plan, a final package to the Board of Commissioners and likely that'll be probably around January 2024 and we'll ask them to allow us to move forward with reintroduction. And so I just want to make that clear. The decision hasn't been made yet on whether to do this or not. Um, but but it's very important that we kind of have a, a process that takes a lot of different things into account, including public opinion um, and public review before we would even move into that. Uh, let's so,
1: let's talk a little bit about just some generic biology some generic overview about the American Martin because while I yeah. know uh, a decent amount I'm sure there's some people out there that just think it's another predator so um, just yeah. tell us a little bit about the American martin and 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 kind of lead into um, why would uh, why would this even be a consideration for our for our state
2: yeah absolutely and so I'll, I'll back it up even a little more from there so the martin, uh, was a native species to Pennsylvania, which I think some folks don't, don't really realize that. And once it was common throughout, you know, all of Pennsylvania and even ranged as far down, um, as like Tennessee, South Carolina, or North Carolina, uh, down into the Appalachian ridges there. And so at one time, this was very common throughout the state. Unfortunately, um, throughout the 1700s, 1800s, we had some massive deforestation. Uh, through logging in Pennsylvania, which is obviously important as part of the settlement of the state. Unfortunately, that took its toll on many of our forest dependent species. And of course, the Martin was one of those. At the same time, we lost a lot of other species um, because of deforestation and, and unregulated harvest. You know, this is prior to any regulations. Um, and it was thought to by about 1900, we had lost pretty much every Martin within the state. And so the last holdout was generally what we think of as like the PA wilds up in north central, up into the northwest and then these northeastern ridges um, just west of Scranton. And and then again, as kind of the the uh, the forests were continued to be cleared, we finally lost all of our Martin. And so we really haven't had the species for 100 years. And, and most people aren't familiar with it anymore, which makes sense. And of course, the further away you get from losing a species, uh, you know, those generations that are more unfamiliar with it. Um, So as far as ecology and biology, uh, to talk about first, just some of the morphology or what they look like or their size and weight, things like that, you know, they, they weigh an average about two pounds and they average about 24 inches long from tip of the tail to their nose. And really... Uh, the best comparison I can make is a mink. An American mink is the exact same size as the American marten. And, of course, we have, you know, lots of mink throughout the state. Um, they are generally, they are part of the same family, what we call the Mustelidae family or the weasel family. And, of course, we have a pretty strong representation of weasels in Pennsylvania. We have three of the actual true weasels, so the very small weasels, the whole way up to the river otter. And we have the fisher uh, in the mink. And and of course the marten kind of falls in there as well. And so, um, this would be returning one of these, uh, weasels back to the state. And, and as far as coloration goes, they're they're more of a lighter Brown. So that we think of the mink as fairly like chocolate Brown to really dark, almost black. And the marten has a much lighter Brown coat. They have an orangish bib underneath their chin that really shows up in the winter time. And then they have kind of a lightish gray, lightish Brown face um with small ears they have a pretty long fluffy tail and that tail is important for them as they move throughout the treetops and of course running up and down trees for balance Um, as far as where they live they you know the, the the habitat is much easier to describe through a photo than it is through words but we generally use the word structural complexity to try to describe what habitat looks like and when we say that You know, try to envision a a forest that is very diverse, has a diverse composition of different trees and shrubs, but it also has a lot of coarse woody debris on the ground. So there's a lot of fallen logs, root balls and rocks. And then we also have a lot of standing timber that's dead or alive, but it's large enough that it has cavities. Cavities are very important for marten. They use them for denning, for raising their young, but they also use them just uh, for over over the day uh, to den in for safety until they come back out to hunt. Um, and so, and, and and we also need to consider that there needs to be an understory, a midstory, and an overstory. And really what I just described is what we would call a healthy forest, a diverse and healthy forest in Pennsylvania. And so this is a species really that's, a, a, it's an iconic species that represents healthy forests, Um, throughout their range um, which is a good reason for bringing them back into the state and so um, that kind of describes some of their habitat some of their their diet and and when we look at food items it's interesting we we conducted research as part of this assessment to look at diet and look very closely at it Um, and we looked at 13 different diet studies from across the range Um, and what we found was really interesting they they have a very diverse diet with many, many um, uh, food items on that uh, diverse diet. And what's interesting though, is the large majority of what they eat day to day. And that makes up the large majority of the composition of that diet is small mammals. And so we say that we mean shrews, mice, voles, chipmunks, things like that. Um, actually, and, and following right behind small mammals. We have uh, insects; they make up a large portion of their diet, particularly during you know the spring, summer, and fall months. And then we have a lot of plant material. So this is a species that eats a lot of vegetation, a lot of fruits, um, and and that lends itself to being a, an important seed disperser as part of the overall uh, e- ecological community that they they live in. And then we of course see them eat other species that or would be expected like squirrels and rabbits and um, songbirds and things like that. But most of that makes up a very small portion um, of their diet. And so that, that kind of ties into some of the things that we looked at for, for risk. You know, one of the things that you really need to consider is before you would bring a species back into the state is how could this potentially negatively impact the, our current suite of species that we have in pennsylvania exactly and so we have that's spe- the
1: first thing i was thinking is are you going to have any kind of interspecific competition going on that would that would cause an issue after 100 years
2: absolutely yeah yep yep and that's that. You you brought up a great point because we need to also consider what that competition looks like with fisher with coyotes with weasels bobcats other things that are utilizing the same prey base and so So what we did is first is we looked, we, we kind of chose some species of concern. Um, and we did that by talking with our constituents. We did that by talking with our colleagues. And so we looked at a variety of species such as things like snowshoe hare, Northern flying squirrels, Northern goshawks, wild turkeys, um, and, and rough grouse and a variety of other species that, you know, might be of concern, whether it's declining populations or other things and so we looked at those and where they fell out in the diet and what we found was most of those either fall very low in the diet um, or they're, they're they're not even on the diet and that's what's interesting particularly with say the northern goshawk or the wild turkey with wild turkey we could find no evidence throughout literature or talking with experts that martin per on wild turkeys uh, whatsoever and that's not just adults that's pos and eggs mm. we know that they do eat some eggs but it's actually a, a very minuscule amount of their diet um, they're not really designed as an egg eater as what we think is more of a nest predator like a raccoon an opossum or a skunk okay. these are these are more of a hunter um, and, and similar to some of the other species that we think of as as things that they might compete with and so so that really that really tied up a lot of um, the assessment, but it was really important. And to be honest with you, when I took on this assessment, that was one of my primary concerns as a former game bird biologist, as, a, as a game bird hunter. Um, you know, my biggest concern was how is this going to impact our, our, our game birds here in the state? And fortunately, uh, based on our assessment, there will be little to no negative impacts on, on these species of concern. Um, but to touch touch on the point that you brought up as far as competition, which is also important, we know that there's a lot of competitors out there, we named them, um, and there's others. And so what we needed to look at is how do these species coexist with these other species like coyotes or fisher in other states? And they certainly do. And they coexist with, with a lot of the prey species as well. And you think of where rough grouse are, um, and they even overlap with turkeys and their southern range. Um, So we know there's a lot of coexistence there and snowshoe hares and and flying squirrels. Um, And so we looked at this coexistence with these other predator species. And what we found was a few different things that helps them partition or kind of separate um, and allows them to coexist. And the first was prey abundance. And so we did some pretty uh, intensive prey abundance studies here, uh, particularly with small mammals, knowing that that was going to be their primary prey base. And what we found is that we have extremely high prey abundance here in Pennsylvania uh, for Martin and for these other species. And so that allows for that coexistence and and, uh, really reduces that competition. The other thing that we have is high snowfall, particularly uh, up in the north central, northwest, northeast. And and Martin spend a lot of their time under the snow during the winter time, what we call that subnivian layer. So those spaces in between the snow and the ground level, um because a that's where most of their prey is of so these small mammals are still traveling under the snow that allows them to outcompete most of their competitors because most of their competitors can't get under the snow like they can it keeps them safe from other predators and it also k- keeps them warm from kind of that harsh winter weather and so that was an important consideration for that partitioning and then lastly, it's this, this idea of habitat diversity and partitioning through that habitat diversity. And when you look at uh, that north central region, Northwest, Northeast, we have this topography that's these very steep ridges that are up and down. The bottoms might be a, a thick hemlock stand. The top might be uh, more of a dry oak stand and everything in between. And that again, through, through what we found with literature is important to allow these species to coexist. Um, so so that was uh, a major part of of the assessment. Um, and then the last thing I'll kind of touch on with that is, is the habitat and, and how we kind of determined whether we had enough habitat or not. Um, it, you know, we knew this was a species that disappeared primarily because the habitat disappeared. So we needed to understand, did that habitat come back? Um, and and do we have enough now and so what we did was the first thing we did was develop a a habitat model a spatial model using uh, gis layers and again a lot of this technology that we have available now and so we we worked with the technology that we have and developed a model that really kind of gave us an idea where we had habitat and again it showed up a lot in that north central region the pa wilds area and then, of course, spread out into the northeast and up into the northwest in that kind of Allegheny National Forest area as well. Um, the other thing we did is we brought experts in, martin experts that have worked on martin for most of their careers to really take a look at this on the ground. You know, you can't, you can't beat really that expert on the ground uh, opinion. And what we found is they were very happy with what they saw. And in some cases, they said that, that the martin habitat here was actually in better condition than what they had in their own states with existing populations of Martin. Um, so, so that was a major part of the assessment, along with kind of the risk assessment to other species and and from other species.
1: That's all huge. So, first thing I'm going to say is you do a great job of answering questions before I ask them. So that was <laughs> that was an awesome awesome overview, and I'm really really glad that you kind of talked through. It. And I I kind of want to want to divest a couple things there you talked about so first of all a lot of people that um I know personally or have heard um in passing uh make accusations and and I understand you're not you're probably not the GIS expert but it's something that you've you've used and and made accustomed to in in your your workload and understanding how this plan was come so can you in a very elementary fashion 101, how in the world would a GIS computer program have any benefit to assessing mm. such a major decision in the habitats? of like? How would something like that, um, how, how does that even look for somebody who's a, just a, a public bystander, doesn't know the first thing about GIS?
2: Yeah, yeah, excellent question. And so GIS stands for Geo, uh, Geographic Informational System and so what it really is, is it's it's basically when you look at your phone and when you look at, say, the Maps app on on your phone. Um, and And then, of course, what it can show you, there's different layers it can show you. So those layers might be a satellite imagery. So it's just looking at the ground from the air. And then, of course, it might be all the roads on there. It could be our traffic when you see traffic stop and so all that technology is really what goes it is it's all based on this GIS system and how it works and so what we did and and, and of course we need to understand that modeling is not perfect modeling it, it just gives us a really good direction to go but we know it's not 100% perfect um but but what's important to understand is is some of the layers that we looked at and these layers are no are, are actually the same things that Folks were looking back at in the 30s and 40s at Habitat, and we have the technology now to really explore that on a much larger scale. And so that's what we did when we looked into this. We looked back into the literature and we found folks that were building not spatial models, but other models to say, okay, Mertens need, um, say, you know, at least uh, 25 to 100% canopy cover, or Mertens need at least, um, you know, 25% conifer cover within that compositional forest Um, or Martens need at least 10 inches of snow depth throughout most of the winter. And so these are things that these, you know, folks prior to me um, were able to determine through research. And then what we can do is we can take these layers that have been developed of snow cover and we're, you know, that's years of information. So it might be a 30 year average of snow cover and we can put that on a map and then each layer, so we look at snow cover, we look at forest composition, we look at tree height, and then we look at like canopy cover and we can actually combine all of these layers, kind of stack them on top of each other and assign basically where all four of those meet, that's basically our darkest color and that's our best habitat and maybe say only where one meets, um, it's the lightest color and that's our poor habitat. And so that's, that's probably a poor way to describe how this works, but it's, it's the general idea behind it. And it's using the technology that we have. And what's interesting is this technology is, is, is just skyrocketing so fast um, forward that it's hard to keep up with but it's really helpful in, in wildlife managers, making decisions like this. And, and again, this is, they didn't have this technology 20 years ago when they had developed this initial assessment, but we have it now. And the other thing that we did is we really proof this, you know, we, we didn't just develop this model for Pennsylvania. We developed it for all the Northeastern states and Michigan, because, you know, we could develop a, a model for Pennsylvania and say, Oh, it's great. Well, how do we know? We don't have any Martin. Um, so what we needed to do was develop a model that we could build throughout all these other states that have existing populations and see how that overlays with these existing populations. And that was actually what helped truth the model. So the model actually lines up pretty much perfectly um, with where we see optimal or high quality habitat. And that lines up with where we have existing populations. And then of course, when we look at Pennsylvania, that gives us a lot of confidence to know we do have that habitat. It's in good quality, good connectivity. Um, and those are all very important things to make sure uh, we, we understand before we move forward
1: yeah absolutely that's a huge one I think that's a nail on the head moment right there because um, a lot of time people hear that computer model computer this computer that mm-hmm. but it's been it's been something that's not just been looked at within the confines of the state of Pennsylvania that is really cool and really exciting and kind of reaffirms that um, I have a it's not really I guess a question as much as it is a comment but you know you were talking about habitat and i mean let's face it habitat is a huge huge topic in any species of wildlife um we we talk about it constantly when you're when you're in the the aspect of deer and turkeys because those get the most publicity um as, as some of the most popular game animals across the country but um we talked with uh, we've talked with other state officials on this show. Um, one of them being Emily, the bear biologist, and you know we, she was one of the things she emphasizes that you know the the bear population in the state of Pennsylvania has has really expanded because of some very good management practices and habitat management things that have happened across the state. And um, I think you could make that claim on a lot of other species. Uh, we've seen. Major differences happen in white tailed deer. We've seen major differences happen in a lot of other species. And the diversity, you know, when you were talking about the the makeup, I mean, we have a really diverse state. Our, uh, I mean, we've got beech birch maple forests up north, Allegheny Plateau, and the rolling mountains that have, you know, heavy oak hickory forests and laurel rhododendron. Um, I was kind of curious, like when you were talking about the the like deadfall areas. The first thing that came to my mind was like uh, like hemlock forests. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like now I feel like whenever you get into what's left of of a hemlock stand, there's there's a lot of dying hemlocks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I was just curious, like um, you you did say that the forest composition that outside experts have looked at it seemed that the the habitat is just as good if not better than some of the places where the martin currently resides but i was wondering like in in over a hundred years of of you know, deforestation and and succession doing its thing we've had a lot of differences and in invasive species occur and uh, i was really curious like if that would have any kind of substantial impact on that species but yeah
2: yeah yeah, that's a great question, Mitchell, and that's it is something that we considered and certainly have to consider, you know, not just now, but into the future. And so part of the assessment was looking at actually climate change and how climate might impact some of these tree species into the future and our forest composition. Um, and then, of course, like you've mentioned, we have, you know, a lot of disease issues currently and particularly for hemlock, we have the woolly adelgid and, and how that's negatively impacting our hemlock stands. Um, And so we need to not just think of today, we need to think of 100 years down the road, 500 years down the road, will this species be able to make it? And so what we did is we, you know, kind of getting back to that modeling idea, we looked at a lot of different climate models to see, okay, well, how's Pennsylvania going to fare if the climate changes um, in the future? And what we found was because of some of the things we talked about, the elevation, topography, snowfall, particularly in some of these areas where we have high suitability for habitat, um, it actually fares very well. When you look at these models that might stretch out 500 years, you know, they don't anticipate a lot of change in forest composition. They don't anticipate a lot of change like we would expect to see, say down in the Southeast or the Southwest or along our Western edge. Um, so that's really encouraging. And that gives us encouragement to say, you know, th- it we should be able to move forward with this without major concerns those disease issues it's always something that we're going to be dealing with invasive species um, but fortunately you know working with some of our partner agencies you know like us forest service dcnr they're doing a lot of great work out there to try to treat um, and, and kind of fight back against some of these invasive species and of course we are as well on our state game lands um, so it's, it's one of those things that so we're, you know, we're always going to be um, trying to do our best to, to kind of get back against some of these invasive species. Um, but, you know, as we've seen with other things, um, generally once we find, uh, I don't want to say a cure, but at least some type of a tool, we can start to work on that, like gypsy moths or something like that, where we can spray um, or we can treat and and have some success. But it, you're absolutely right. We need to consider some of these other Kind of outside forces that are uh, that are kind of negatively impacting our, our current forest health.
1: So I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about you know habitat makeup across the state and some, some benefits of that. I'm kind of curious, like what does uh, so so let's let's go with the theory that um, all uh, goes well and this is something that gets um, implemented and mm-hmm. i'd be curious like what is the what is the home range look like on this species and mm. how should how would you expect um how would you expect that range to kind of mold because i'm sure like you have a like a or, or the, the the management plan will have a set in mind like where um trap transfer will occur but then mm-hmm. the the, the the species is going to kind of find its own niche across the state over time. So I'm kind of wondering, sure. home range and statewide, what that kind of looks like in your mind over time.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So home range is it, on average is about 3.5 miles square, um, which is a fairly large home range for such a small species. You know, we think about things like Fisher or Bobcat; they have a, a much larger home range. Um, but even so, with the Martin, that's a fairly large home range, uh, which is important to consider that we probably would not have high densities of Martin within the state. And we don't generally see high densities in places like the Adirondacks or up into Maine um, or, or in some of these other habitats where they have existing populations. Uh, they generally persist at, at relatively low densities. And that just gets into that idea of, of having such a high home range. As far as, you know, statewide, what their range would look like, it can be difficult to tell. You know, we're relying on this habitat model that we have. Um, and I, you know, I'd certainly encourage folks to check out our assessment. Um, they can get online on our website and go to our American Martin page, and we have a link to the assessment. And you can see some of the maps that we develop for um, where we have suitable habitat within Pennsylvania. You know, some of the questions that I get um, are you know would you expect martin to kind of expand it like the fisher did and i think a lot of folks expected fisher to kind of stay um in in some of that northern areas and not expand as much as they did but what we see with fisher is it seems like they're much more adaptable um with habitat and so they can survive and and do well in a a, quite a diverse uh bit of habitat but with Martin, what we find is that they seem to be slightly more specific um, to those habitat needs. And so we're, we're pretty confident that our habitat model is fairly uh, fairly uh, intuitive to where we would where we would see uh, Martin expect to see them kind of range within the state and expand. But again, it is one of those things that you're never 100 percent sure. And so we, we have to be honest about that and just say this is what we would expect based on all the literature throughout the years, based on talking with experts. Um, but you know, it's one of those things that, that, uh, will be important as part of our monitoring plan and, and trying to get, you know, GPS collars or radio telemetry on some of these, um, individuals when they're released and and really kind of understand more on what, what habitat they're preferring here in Pennsylvania. Um, and how maybe that's the same or different from where we see it in other other states um, in other parts of the the range
1: but you would kind of say that a martin is more of a specialist compared to like if you're comparing it to a fisher which seems to be would it be would would i say it's a generalist or an opportunist or something like that that just seems like it's just more diverse.
2: Yeah, I, I yeah, I think I think they certainly are just more adaptable. Um, I think part of it is um, a Martin is seems to be basically more concerned about predators than a fisher is, um, you know, what we see with Martin um, in particular is that if they come up to an opening without overhead cover, they're generally will not cross that opening unless it's very small. And so, you know, we wouldn't expect to see them come into agricultural communities um, or even human development it seems like they really shun any kind of human development we see that you know throughout their range you know they just don't um, don't like to be around people or or people um, and where they live and where they work and so so that would be somewhat of a difference whereas we see fisher beginning to adapt to some human development in pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and certainly beginning to occupy some of these these agricultural lands. No, I'm not saying like things like places like Lancaster, where you have no trees or, or forests, but places where you have a mix of, of woodlands and agricultural lands. Fisher seem to be uh, doing relatively well in those areas, whereas I would not foresee a Martin uh, Martin being able to adapt to that like like the Fisher has.
1: Well, and in my simple way of thinking, and you can correct me if there's if I if I skewed this or if there's more to add to this but a fisher i don't believe is there any predator to a fisher in the state of pennsylvania
2: that's a good question i i would think for smaller fishers so maybe a female or young fisher um i would think that that uh, a coyote could take them um and uh and be somewhat successful at at, um, killing a younger fisher But I would say generally an adult, an adult male fisher, there probably aren't many things out there beyond humans, um, that, that can successfully take an adult male fisher, but besides possibly a coyote or, Mm -hmm. um, or a man, you know, with Martin, when we think of predators, we think of primarily birds of prey. Mm -hmm. And so we're thinking about hawks and owls. And then of course, some of these larger predators, like, uh, say a bobcat or a coyote, um, would be kind of more the predators for a Martin than, than, yeah, like you had mentioned a Fisher.
1: Yeah. And I, that was kind of one of the things I was thinking is that, a, a a Martin, the size of the animal, the, the type of specialist that it is and everything else, it just seems as though there is going to be a higher, uh, higher predator, um, predator aspect for, for that species. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, certainly. So we were talking earlier, uh, before we, before we got started, got rolling here, um, we were, uh, we were talking about your, your interest in, uh, in bird hunting. And Mm -hmm. there was, uh, of course there's a ton of, uh, interest in bird hunting in Pennsylvania. We've had a a rich heritage of bird hunting in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, uh, bird hunters are concerned about that. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, do a little bit of uh, devil's devil's advocate type questions with you, just out of curiosity, because I think it's stuff that uh, general public and hunters and and conservationists would would probably be concerned about. Um, I'm gonna start this though on a more positive light, and I'd, I'd be curious, like we talked about some general ecology, the habitat and stuff like that of the martin. I'm I'm curious though, in in your mind, what does the martin bring? Um, to the state of Pennsylvania that's a benefit for the ecosystem.
2: Yeah, yeah and so there's a lot of there's a lot of actual benefits to reintroduction even beyond ecological benefits which I'd, I'd like to speak on those at some point tonight but what I would say is with with just the ecological side there's several things so so when we think of our ecological community we we can think of almost like a watch with a lot of different cogs in it, or a lot of different um, mechanics that that make it work. And so every time one of those pieces is removed, that watch works a little less well, um, just like a vehicle or any kind of mechanical device. And so so when we think of the ecological community, it can it can continue to persist, but it's not as healthy as what it once was as we kind of take parts and pieces away. You know, we know that the martin was an integral piece of our ecological community in Pennsylvania. And we know that there are specific things that it, it brings to the table um, as part of that community. Two of those things more specifically are, you know, the martin um, is a very, because of, of all the vegetation it eats and all the fruit and, and other seed bearing um, uh, seeds that it, that it eats, we know it's an important seed disperser. For a healthy forest, and so it, because it has such a large home range, because it has a, a very large dispersal capability, it can move seeds throughout the forest. And we don't often think about the importance of that, but some of these, um, you know, vegetation species rely on um, animal species to move their seeds throughout the forest, and so that's very important. It also can help manage um kind of the rodent population within a forest and that can also be very important um, instead of this these high swings uh high highs or high lows of, of rodents and how that can um, offset um, some of the health of a forest we see these species being very important to help regulate that and there's probably many other reasons ecologically that we're just not aware of we just we don't have the science um behind it yet to understand all of that. And of course, this field of ecology is, is, you know, some days you feel like we're just scratching the surface of understanding how all of this works together. Um, but, but yes, ecologically, that's where I would say it's, it's a very important uh, part of our system that's missing. Um, and so I think that's the reason of why we would want to consider bringing it back. And and the other part of that, I would say getting back to habitat and what you talked about earlier with habitat is because this species is so representative of a healthy forest, it can almost act as almost an umbrella or a flagship species to many other species that rely on the same forest, such as turkey, such as grouse, woodcock, and some of these other game species that, you know, many people have interest in. Um, and, and sometimes you need a species like that. That's going to also benefit all these other species. Uh, along the way and so so you know it's it's falling in line with the missions of places like nwtf or rgs or aws or you know audubon or or wherever it might be um it's it's going to actually uh be be beneficial for other species just through through the the uh, kind of the flagship idea of habitat
1: i really like that and I, i like talking about the seed dispersal um that's, yeah. that's that's important because that's something a lot of people wouldn't think of. Um, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to start a couple devil's advocate questions, and one of them stems off of that seed dispersal. So as the composition of our forest has slightly changed over the course of 100 years, and we did bring up invasive species, is there any, any um, literature or anything out there that says there's potential that um, a prolific invasive species could expand because maybe Martins would be um Mm. be consuming those those nuts berries and stuff like that that would disperse seed and and cause a problem to be worse
2: yeah that's a good question and i don't think there is much literature out there to be perfectly honest with you uh based on what i've seen but i think that it would be an important uh important part of kind of that monitoring aspect is is looking at you know the diet of individuals if they're brought in to see if that's if that's a major portion you know thinking about some of the invasive species that kind of pop pop into my head, you know the only one that that would be most concerning to me would be something like autumn olive, where you have more of a, a large fleshy uh, type of seed that might be attractive um, to a marten. Um, but but again, marten are are generally tied to more of the native species. That's what they've evolved with. There are many of these native species. Um, and it's not to say they can't adapt to these invasives, but, but most, most native species that have evolved with other native species generally, uh, will, will kind of favor those natives. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's something that there's not a lot of literature on, but it's definitely something that we would want to consider within that monitoring protocol and make sure that we're, we're paying close attention to that. Okay. Okay.
1: Great. So, uh, next devil's advocate question. So, um, you talked about, um, they're more of a insect plant material and uh, rodent type consumer. Um, however, there's a, there's a small sliver that, that might be uh, game species, you know, nest rating stuff like that. Even that small sliver, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, a, a bird hunter and a bird enthusiast, game bird enthusiast. So, you know, how is that um, something that we could still even take a chance, given the fact that our some of our game, you know, our rough grouse is on the lower trend, the turkeys are on the lower trend? It, um, it, is that really a risk that is, is worth taking?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, that's what the first question that I asked when I was assigned this. Um, was, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that this worth is, this risk is worth taking because of that. But as I started to dive into it and really started to learn about the species, you know, one of the things that kind of kept coming back to me is, okay, these species that we're concerned about, such as grouse, such as Turkey, say snowshoes, um, you know, maybe other species that may be declining or, or at least perceived to be declining, um, what's the reason behind that? and trying to get to really what's the true reason behind these declines. And we look at species like grouse, you know, the reasons are habitat, the reasons are disease. Um, you know, we're, we're doing a large study on turkeys right now, and it's difficult to tell you know, what might be impacting Turkey populations to increase or decrease throughout the state or stay stable. Um, and, and but some of these other species like, uh, flying squirrels and, uh, snowshoes, you know, a lot of that's habitat driven. And of course, it's easy to blame predators. And of course, predators are taking their fair share. But, you know, I always liken it to um, some of the work I did uh, overseeing some of the wild pheasant recovery areas that we did. And and what we would do is we would we would do flushing surveys each year in these, in these large fields of warm season grass that we'd work with private landowners to plant. And then we had brought pheasants in from South Dakota and from Montana. And we had these, you know, long-term populations that were persisting. And so what we would do is we would, um, we needed to get a sex ratio on hens to roosters. And that was put into a population uh, estimator so that we had an estimate on populations at the end of the year. So I would work with, um, a lot of folks from Pheasants Forever and just bird dog enthusiasts. And we would line up along one side of a field and then i would go to the other end of that field and then the 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 folks would let their dogs go and work through this field trying to get as many birds in the air as we could and count um, and get a sex uh, ratio on those and what always just just kind of blew my mind was i'd stand at the end of that field and those dogs you could see the grass working through and i'd have two or three coyotes come out of there a few red fox I'd have um, a few owls come out and maybe a hawk or two. And then we'd also have, you know, maybe 40, 50 pheasants come out at the same time. And so what we, you know, what I really learned there was the importance of habitat for a species and that those predators and those prey can both persist in there and have healthy populations and coexist. And I think that gets back to um, thinking about, okay, we look at where martin are look at a range map of rough grouse and how they coexist with martin look at a range map of snowshoe hare and how they coexist and even like i said that southern range overlaps with with most of the turkey range and so we have this coexistence um and, and a lot of that is driven by having the right habitat um and and kind of getting back to that kind of the key behind it and I think the other thing to think about is, again, it's, it would be at a low density because of how large their home ranges are. Um, and, and the chances of actually coming into contact with some of these species would be relatively low. Um, and, and we don't manage on an individual basis. We look at a population basis throughout the state and, and manage on a population basis. So, so I, I think that's, you know, again, looking back at the diet studies and how, kind of how some of these species of concern shook out, Um, there's just really no uh, major negative impacts for a lot of these species that we're concerned of, particularly as hunters, you know, that that we pursue.
1: Yeah. Habitat, quality habitat, and a lot of quality habitat really minimize the amount of boom bust in a population. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when you look at the history in our country, but even just within the state of Pennsylvania, of certain things that have been mismanaged and Mm they they've caused drastic results um you know i'm gonna i'm just gonna i'm gonna stick on the the one that everybody talks about and that's that's deer and you know there was there was times Mm -hmm. in the you know the the mid-20th century when we had um, such a high deer population, and the the repercussions that had was huge. Um, but from a public perception thing, um, that that created so much hunting opportunity and this and that. So it's a it's definitely a perception of this is what's right. And now that you're trying to change something with introducing a species that isn't as much of a, a prey species as a predator, it, there's a lot of obviously misconceptions, and and that's mm-hmm. big. And I'm I'm really glad that you talked about um, quality habitat and like diversity, because you, when we talk about diversity for what one specific species needs, we we do that all the time. Like, okay, we we need to have, um, early succession habitat Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, uh, green, leafy vegetative plants, you know, plants, you know, forbs and shrub component. And then we need to have um, a midstory and an overstory and a softwood and a hardwood composition, and that's what's perfect for this species. But in all mm-hmm. reality, so many species benefit for, it, and that's part of the ecosystem. It's multiple species yeah. that benefit for that. If you have a solid um, monoculture it's not gonna be good for a lot of species. And I I think that's mm-hmm. hard for people to wrap their head around like uh the 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 mammals, the birds and stuff like that. That's all part of the plant ecosystem. So that's that's big. Yeah. But I'm I'm gonna stick on devil's advocate. Um so the American Martin where the home range currently is in the country, we're talking about New England states, Michigan. Let's talk about some states that um, are not quite as developed as the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, we have that big woods component, but we also have a lot of mixture. Uh, we're a little bit more population dense. So, does that create potential for another um, another potential invader of you know like a, like a human interaction conflict mm-hmm. like for mm-hmm. uh people who are homesteading chickens and poultry and and stuff like that is that actually going to create a bigger problem uh for the general public
2: yeah 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 another good one and that's that's honestly we've gotten that question a few times particularly from like backyard flock raisers and 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 you know my wife and I have a backyard flock ourselves and deal with deal with predators because we generally free range and, um, and that's kind of just part of it. But you know, what I generally talk talking specifically about livestock and, and backyard flocks, you know, when I tell people, um, you know, if your if your flocks protected against a mink or a weasel, it'll be protected against the marten. Um, and, and so those predators, there's other predator species are already out there. Um, uh, so this really wouldn't add to it. And again, like we talked about earlier, Martin really does shy away from human development, um, and, and the the benefit of Pennsylvania to kind of get back to the, an earlier part of that question is that we still have a lot of public land and a lot of wild, um, you know, depending on how you would define wilderness. But truly, I think at least on the East Coast, we have a lot of wilderness in Pennsylvania, and we have, of course, wilderness areas, we have wild areas and natural areas, but. You know, when you look at where martin habitat uh, lies within the state and then when you censor that by public lands and public lands are very important for reintroduction uh, efforts because they don't, um, they're not as easily influenced by market trends. So things, you know, we are working with pheasants and quail and reintroducing them, you know, we we're looking at agriculture and the and agricultural commodity prices as they come up or go down and rental payments and things like that. And that's somewhat similar within the forest landscape is timber and so timber um, and natural gas or oil um, or even coal things like that and how that's affected and when we look at how much public land we have in pennsylvania we're very blessed uh, to have quite a bit and again the suitable habitat lines up very nicely with where we have this public land up in our northern tier and so so i think um, you know, obviously, we continue to develop PA, but a lot of these public lands are protected from that development. Um, and so even as we kind of continue to develop, I think there's plenty of space for both Martin and for humans uh, without any kind of major conflict in the future.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, so this might be a question maybe you won't be able to answer um but I'll ask it anyway. Um, so let's say, again, it, it passes through. What exactly does a trap and transfer reintroduction look like? Um, f- f- just from the general sense of what does it actually look like? How does that actually happen? Where, do, wh- where does Martin come from? But what about from the aspect of um, h- how is that plan – implemented from, like, the funding side of things and taxpayer Mm. dollars and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, the first thing I'll say to kind of address that, because that's a common misconception, is that the Pennsylvania Game Commission doesn't uh, actually take any taxpayer money. And so we are solely funded um, from hunter license sales, um, from, you know, some of the commodities that we get off our state game lands, like natural gas or timber, And, and then of course, uh, Pittman Robertson monies that come in. And so that's important to consider, um, that, that, you know, that's, it's that we don't actually take taxpayer monies. Um, but, but as far as funding goes, in reality, this would be a relatively cheap project to move on. And it's primarily because we have the habitat in place. You know, when I was working on the the quail habitat restoration work, you know, that took a lot of resources. It's important. It's certainly not squandered by any means because, you know, we're losing grasslands in Pennsylvania at an alarming rate. It's one of the few habitats that, uh, we, ha- we, we just don't have much of. It's kind of more of like an endangered habitat. And so it's not just to benefit quail. It's going to benefit all those grassland species. Like you talked about, you know, these, these large habitat types support hundreds and hundreds of, of different species that rely on it. And so, but that was a, a relatively expensive project. Um, nonetheless, it's important because we had to create that habitat. And that's going to go a long ways. Um, for Martin, It's we don't have to do that habitat uh, development. It, it's going to be relatively easy. And really what we're looking at is the cost associated uh, with kind of that translocation or that trap and transfer process. And even that's really not too bad. You know, we have some relatively close populations of Martin, um, you know, well within driving distance. And, and that kind of gets into that plan itself, which we're working on developing. But that plan will take into account, okay, where exactly are we going to release Martin? Again, we talked about public lands and how important they are. So that's where we're working with some of the major public landowners in Pennsylvania um, to partner with on this. And then we're also talking about okay where would we get martin from where would we source this species and these individuals and so that's where we're talking with a lot of other states that have good martin populations as well as canadian provinces and so we would work out agreements with those states or provinces and then we work very closely with their staff um, as well as likely trappers and so the, the fortunate thing with martin is there's been over 40 documented reintroduction projects throughout uh, North America for, for the American Martin. So it's really one of the most reintroduced species um, that's, that is a fur bear, And so we have all this really good data uh, that kind of helps support um, ha- exactly how to do this. So what has worked, what hasn't worked, but we know it's been relatively successful, You know the, highest, the high percentage of success um, with a lot of these reintroduction projects. And so that plan, you know, not just is is it going to be you know, location and source, but it's also going to be, okay, do we have a diversity of sources to kind of increase genetic diversity right off the bat? That's going to be important. And then exactly how do we do that? And a lot of these other projects work specifically with fur trappers to live trap these animals and then working with agency staff um, to get them down uh, to wherever that re- released location was. Um, and then of course the, the next important thing is looking at health. So we want to do health screenings on all these Martin, we want to be very cautious with bringing any potential disease or parasites into the state. And then we also, um, want to make sure that we're releasing them the right way. So there's different release methods that we need to, uh, consider. And then of course, again, like we talked about earlier, the monitoring. And so how do we monitor this species long term? to really determine whether it's it's successful or not, and of course to look at things like survival and reproduction um and, and really habitat preference and then of course things like dispersal and, and movement. So so that that plan is really going to be an all-encompassing plan on on the reintroduction itself and then that long term monitoring. And it's going to get into the kind of the nitty-gritty details um that we need to know in order to have a successful reintroduction.
1: It's all really, really fascinating. Um, I'm running out of my devil's advocate questions. I'd be curious, you know, we're, we're closing in here on an hour and I'll let you go as long as you'd like to um, from here on out. But I, uh, I'm wondering, is there any other common misconceptions or common concerns that you've been hearing about this project that I missed?
2: Yeah, I think you know, thinking to some of the, like the the frequently asked questions, you know, we talked about the size of the mart, and that's really one of those common misconceptions. You know, again, same size as a mink. It's actually the same size as a fox squirrel as far as length goes. So, I mean, that's something to consider. Um, and then, of course, their diet. We talked about diet, and really, the most the most common concern is is predating on turkeys. And again, there's just no evidence in literature to support that they per date on turkeys, whether that's pulse eggs or adults. Um, but another thought is, and we talked about the livestock concern, but another question that com- comes up is how would this potentially affect, um, management as far as say timber cutting oil and gas extraction, things like that, bringing a species like this back into Pennsylvania. Um, and I think the concern is, you know, would this automatically be a, a threatened and endangered species? Would this be a species of greatest conservation need and potentially shut down some of these, um, these industries? And the answer is no, this will be considered an experimental population, uh, which means we just bring it in. It'd be similar to the elk, the fisher, the otter. These are all what we call experimental populations. And that doesn't give them any, uh, special or specific, um, uh, restrictions or concerns or, or protection beyond just you, they're not allowed to be hunted or trapped um, until they would reach like a harvestable population, and so that's that's kind of one of those frequently asked questions that comes up. And then even from trappers, we have a concern of, well, how is this going to restrict my trapping for other species? Um, you know, the, the the concern there is, well, they're they're going to restrict trapping so that we don't catch any marten in an area, mm. and. W- in all honesty, we would not do that. They have done that in other states, but those states have allowed cona bears or body gripping traps outside of a water course and allowed them on trees and things like that. And we don't allow that here in Pennsylvania. So if a martin would be trapped, it would likely be um, trapped by the foot and likely be allowed to be released and, and, and back into the wild. And that's where we would just work with our trappers, you know, with information and education to say, if you catch a Martin, let us know, but just turn it loose and, um, and let it go on its way. So, so those are kind of some of the, the frequently asked questions. I think the one question though, that, that we kind of touched on at least on the ecological side, but I think is really important that we talk about some of the other reasons of why we consider this and, and ensure people that there's a lot of good reasons behind it. And it's not just a gee whiz project. Um, that, uh, that that just seems neat. And so I, I think, you know, we think about not just the ecological benefits, but, you know, the kind of the political benefits. And, and that's this idea of, of um, biological diversity. And we see this in, in a lot of our rhetoric and a lot of our plans. You know, we have it in our strategic plan and many of our game lands plans. You know, we see our partner agencies have it in most of their plans. And of course, it's important not just for the state of pennsylvania but for the nation and and very seldomly you know we, we talk about stabilizing ecological or biological diversity but we generally don't have a chance to increase biological diversity and this is actually one of the few chances we have at increasing uh diversity within the state um so so that's very important and then we think about economically and and you know we have some great we we know in pennsylvania that Um, there's a fair share of our GDP that comes from outdoor recreation and from wildlife watching. So kind of these non-consumptive use of wildlife, which would be more wildlife watching, uh, nature photography, things like that. And then, of course, the consumptive use, which is hunters, trappers, uh, fishermen. And really, um, you know, on that non-consumptive side, when you look at Other examples, like the elk, like the bald eagle, like the peregrine falcon, these are all reintroductions that have really stimulated uh, economic growth within kind of this outdoor recreation side of things. And so we know there's benefit there to bringing species back. And then if we would be able to get to a harvestable population, we still have uh, one of the highest numbers of fur takers in the nation in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. And our fur taker numbers are really not dropping. We've seen an increase in fur taker numbers for a long time. And so that just gives them another opportunity to stay engaged and, and continue to um, engage in fur taking um, opportunities. And so, so, you know, we talk about that and then we talk about socially. Um, one of the things that I think is important to mention is, you know, we did, we did some, um, we did some surveys to look at public opinion. And and we kind of tagged onto a larger survey that we had here in Pennsylvania that we put out to uh, people from across the state, not just hunters or trappers, but everyone. And what we found is that 92 percent of people supported martin reintroduction in Pennsylvania. We were actually able to, to censor that down to hunters, so those that consider themselves a hunter and 92 percent of hunters also supported martin reintroduction so so i think there's some misinformation out there that hunters don't support this in reality the large majority do um but but another reason is just culturally something that we don't often think about but i think it's important to think about is that you know even though we don't have tribal lands here in pennsylvania we still have a lot of indigenous peoples that live and call pennsylvania home and this was an important species to a lot of those cultures, particularly that lived up around the Great Lakes region. You know, it was used as a clan animal. It was told um, in many of their legends and their stories um, as an important species. And so we need to be considerate of that. And really lastly, as Pennsylvania, and we may have mentioned this, but as Pennsylvanians, we need to be proud because we have a legacy of this idea of ecological restoration and bringing species back that we lost and we lost them because of you know this deforestation or um, environmental degradation and we've brought them back and and we have this laundry list and we have mentioned some of them but the ones we haven't mentioned are things like white-tailed deer or things like wild turkeys you know and some of these species we take for granted that were they might not have been extirpated but they were darn close they were on the brink And we brought these species back you know white tailed deer and train cars and turkeys from other states um and and again you know we talk about some of these other species like beaver um that that we often forget about because they're everywhere and and we just don't we take them for granted but at one time you know they were gone and so so we have this legacy here in pennsylvania of, of restoring these natural systems and i think we need to be proud of that and I think we need to take advantage of of an opportunity like this, because, you know, honestly, this is one of our last opportunities to do this. And and this could be our generation's last opportunity to move forward with a restoration project like this. So those are kind of some of the reasons why I think this is important, why I really feel passionate about this project um, and, and what I'm hoping to kind of pass that passion on to others in the state um, that that might be interested
1: that's a long list of reasons and it's, it's a, there's a lot of information there that I didn't know. And I'm really glad that you shared with me. I, I'm, I'm hoping that this, uh, enlightens a lot of our listeners. Um, Tom, thanks for taking the time to share about this really cool, um, really cool opportunity. What does the immediate future look like, uh, from a legislative side of things?
2: Yeah. So, so I guess, um, For us, again, that timeline moving forward is going to be really working on this uh, reintroduction management plan and getting that uh, to our board of commissioners by the next July meeting. Mm -hmm. And then um, asking that, asking the board to then move that into a public comment and review period. So get that out to the public. And then again, um, bringing that back, making sure that we're addressing a lot of those concerns or questions that the public might have and coming up with a final uh, final draft that we can bring back to the board likely again, probably January 24 or sometime, um, at that winter meeting and and asking our board to, to, uh, allow us to move forward with reintroduction. So, so that's kind of where it, where it stands right now and and what I'm going to be working on here as well as working with a lot of our partner agencies and organizations to, um, to, uh, kind of, you know, get on board with us and, and help us move this thing forward.
1: Fantastic. So uh, I'll leave you this, um, what, what has you most excited about the rest of the fall winter from an aspect of hunting and trapping? What do you got your sights set on this year?
2: <laughs> so, uh, so this year, um, I was able to actually just do a little bit of grouse hunting and and I was grateful for that. We got you know a good number of birds. Good, good. Yeah. Well, I say I did good. Uh, on uh on saturday i actually went two for two and then uh yeah so i got a limit which i hadn't limited for a while and then on sunday morning that was the first uh sunday hunt day that that we could have i think i went zero for eight so uh i knocked myself right back off of the the high horse that i was on which is probably a good thing to kind of get that humility back (laughs) shotgun for grouse uh so i shoot a ruger red label but i shoot that for everything i'm kind of a one one gun guy um but uh but yeah that that gun's been with me for i think over eight states and and killed a lot of different game birds so
1: very cool yeah big yeah yep. what about, what about so, from the trapping side of things
2: yeah the trapping side this this year i will probably run like a mink and and coyote line nearby um and uh and we live down here in cumberland county and there's some good good uh mink trapping down here that i'm going to try to take advantage of and that's again that's one of those species that um i don't think i'll ever get tired of pursuing and i'll certainly never learn enough about them they just they always uh always teach me something new every time i go after them so i appreciate them a lot
1: good deal do you have any bucket list um trapping or hunting adventures that you're hoping to do whether that's in pennsylvania or somewhere else in the country
2: yeah, well, that's that's why I'm not doing a lot of I'm not usually I take three weeks off the trap every year, and this year I'm not going to take much time because next October uh, I'll be 40 next year, and my plan is actually to go for a bird called Himalayan Snowcock, mm. and there's only only one place in North America, which is the Ruby Mountains of uh, Nevada, but apparently it's um, it's the most difficult. Uh, upland game bird to hunt it's more like a dull sheep hunt than it is anything else so um so that's kind of what i'm what i'm shooting for before i get too old to, <laughs> to crawl up a mountain
1: i I, so. I think correct me if i'm wrong if you know this but i'm almost positive meat eater did an episode on himalayan uh on on that or i i saw that somewhere somebody talking yeah. about that it was like like a, a really labor intensive hunt
2: it is, yeah, yeah. I know there's been only a few, few folks that have done it um, and been successful. There's folks that do it every year that are mm. successful, but I think the success rate is like less than two oh, percent every cow. year. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one. So I'm planning on going out for probably two weeks and heading up into the mountains there, and not, hopefully not coming out until I until I get one. So very cool. Yeah, that's man. that's the plan. Yep.
1: Very cool. Uh, Tom, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to, to share. Uh, you're welcome to come back anytime on the show. I uh, really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Mitchell. Thanks so much.